Hello, everyone. Welcome back to experiment number three of Exploring Reality. I'm Costa. This is Byram. And today we're going to be talking about books. But Byram, <laughs> maybe let's start with, you know, why, what, why books? Why are books important? So there's a lot of information out there, right? Like as we talked about before, um, it's a lot about filtering these days. So all the information is there. It's just about uh, finding the right information at the right time and consuming it in the right way. And I think books are um, a fantastic medium for like actually conditioning your brain. Because, for example, if you read an article, you will read one article, one snippet of information about something. And it might inspire you and it might give you new ideas, but it doesn't force you to think about something over a prolonged period of time. Whereas if you read a book or you listen to a book, um, you will be in different environments. It will literally be a period in your life where you read that book, right? So even if I look back at like the books that I've read, usually I can identify in what kind of period I was. And I think uh, given the fact that you might be um, anywhere from like one week to four uh, weeks on a specific book, that's enough time to actually rewire how you think about a topic and actually to get some of the key concepts and mental models top of mind. Uh, so that's why I personally prefer books. How about actually, you? I, I actually hadn't thought about it in that way in terms of, you know, the fact that you're committing to a specific length of time and the importance of that length of time. Um, I guess I, I totally agree in terms of deep diving. I think it's really important that you're just able to immerse yourself in a given topic. Like, for example, right now I'm reading a book called Algorithms to Live By, which is incredible. It's about all the different kind of like big turning points in computer science and how it's all come together. And it's just so nice to be completely engulfed in this kind of like theme and, and, and this universe um, for the yeah. last couple of weeks. But I guess actually that, that there's something that's also I think subtly more important and maybe from like an evolutionary point of view, I think there's just something quite powerful in terms of the importance that we give to the information that we get from a book versus yeah. something that we read online. So I think like, you know, from a business point of view, it's become a lot easier to publish a book, but it's still substantially much harder to publish a book than it is to publish a blog post. Therefore, the amount of work that the author has to go through in order to get that book out there means yeah. that there's somehow the A, the amount of effort that someone has gone through has been at a slightly higher bar, which means that I kind of tend to trust it more than I do anything on the Internet. Um, but B, I think that, you know, that there might there must be something evolutionary when you think about how, you know, 2000 years ago, it was only the nobility and people within kind of certain powers of uh, positions of power within religion that had the ability to read. And that was actually a tool, right? And I guess when the printing press came in and sort of the Renaissance period, sort of books got disseminated to the people. And in many ways, that was a, a turning point in sort of helping uh, bridge the gap between like the different classes, just because now information was power, and but information became much easier to transfer. So I think that there's also just something much more powerful when we when we read a book. And I say this, I know there's some people that know me and they're going to judge me because it's like, but Costa, you listen to audiobooks, it's not the same. <laughs> and it's like, I know it's not the same, but you know, the user experience of an audiobook is, is better, but still I think the economic kind of argument is, is still an interesting one. And also like to, because I think that's a great point. I've also had this discussion and um, 
about a year ago or or a bit longer i was of the same opinion that like mm. reading a book is fundamentally different than listening to audiobooks mm. uh, i've come around though um because Ooh. in the end like science bitch <laughs> 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 uh, like audiobooks also have this other side where um so first off, like how you best retain information is personal, right? So some people like mm. find it way easier to like retain the information and to actually make sense of it, uh, to see the bigger picture when yeah. it's auditive uh, mm. instead of like just characters on a page. Mm. Whereas um, I also think one benefit is that I usually listen to audiobooks while I'm biking, for example. Mm -hmm. But the human brain re remembers information and, and, and that... Um, Remembering is very strongly connected to spatial information. So if you're in a different place, you'll remember things differently. And something that I never had with actual books, I would usually be somewhat in the same place reading the books. I might be like in public transport at once mm. or at a friend's, but usually uh, it would be in one place. Whereas with an audiobook, I noticed that very specific insights are linked with very, very specific spots oh, where shit. I biked. Right. Ah, okay. So that spatial memory really helps with like um, making sense of some of the concepts. Does that make sense? Huh. Yeah. No, no, that makes a lot of sense. I hadn't really thought about that before because I guess, yeah, we, we do. Memory does work much better when you anchor it to something, whether it be yeah. an emotion, a place, a sound, you know, some kind of sensory input makes memory much easier. Um, interesting. Okay. I hadn't thought about so, that. Yeah. Great, another argument to have uh, with people who like paper books. Yeah, th this comes down to like, what's your preference, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I still do both at once. Like one one tiny trick that might be useful, like um, I try to read multiple books at once yeah. to like get some kind of like cross-pollination of the ideas within the book. So for example, one book on mm. meditation, one book on psychology and one book on technology. And then you can think very specifically about which books do I want to listen to and which books do uh, I want to read to because those are different experiences and you will get different things out of them if that yeah. makes sense no but but also actually so, so here's an interesting thing up until I think maybe a year and a half ago I was yeah. really kind of strung around like I'm going to start a book and I'm going to finish this book but now I've actually realized that like torturing yourself just to finish a book that you ultimately <laughs> don't find interesting is actually yeah not that not that great um but but also i think to the point that we, you know we made this point around uh you know youtube and, and how much content is created out there you know books are just the same even if you had an entire lifetime you couldn't you're you're 100 doomed to fail in terms of being able to read every book out there so again you know filtering selection just becomes so important and with that lovely segue uh maybe it's time to talk about some of the books that i don't know where that segue come from but i i, I, I quite enjoyed it <laughs> yeah um, sorry, I'm now narrating to myself about myself. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, speaking of books, yeah. what would you say are, have been some of the most, you know, pivotal books that you've read in recent years? Why? You know, sort of like, why was that book important? What did you take away? Um, and also give it a bit of context in terms of the time of life that you, you were at. Because one of the really interesting things that I found is that with stuff like books, you can, depending on what phase of life you're at and also what your current mental state is, you can read an incredible book and it feel like shit or a quite bad book, but it feels great. Yeah, 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 100%. Um, 
One of the books I really enjoyed, and I think this is one that a lot of people uh, actually know, mm-hmm. Principles by Ray Dalio. Um, because I think like a lot of books are on strong topics and then they might be a good combination of like uh, or a collection of information. Mm-hmm. This book is different. This is someone who had experience in his life which almost no human will ever have, if that makes sense. Like um, very few people actually become a multi-billionaire, which is not the goal in itself, but you do learn a lot on the way there, right? And um, like one of the the, the principles that I was thinking about quite a bit when I was starting out as an entrepreneur Mm -hmm. is you need to have some kind of principles. You need to have some, some... guidelines that will make it easier to make the right decisions instead of like focusing on every situation in life as a as a one-off kind of thing um but that was just like some intuitive way of thinking i didn't have any (laughs) backbone for it didn't Mm. have any more information and then um this book came out with the name principles and i was instantly in love wanted to read it Mm. and i think um he did a great job at showing how this can be useful, making it actionable for people. Yeah. Because in the end, everyone has different principles, right? So the book is a collection of like life and work principles. And these are in essence the, um, the guidelines or the actual principles that he lives by. Mm-hmm. And... Um, the, the life principles are more broad in terms of they're pretty much always there. Think, for example, of be radically transparent or be radically open-minded in the sense that like uh, those are things that he has found work really well because in the end, truth is the, the is an essential foundation for any good outcome. Um, but he did a great job at showing his personal principles also related to the company, Bridgewater, which he started. And... I think it's a great way to like get people thinking about their own principles. And for example, on uh, on some social media, I saw a lot of like other people sending him um, their lists of their principles, which in itself is an entire new way of thinking, right? So it's it's in some ways like a paradigm shifting book. Um, so I think that's one that I would definitely recommend to everyone. And if I would have to like summarize it in in. Th- three words why principles are key like in the end they compress wisdom right they just give you a very simple rule and if you follow that rule then you will make intuitively better decisions as opposed to um dealing with every situation as a one-off kind of so long long story but there you go <laughs> i think principles Ooh. is a good one i'm not Have sure you read I agree with you. sorry i'm not sure i agree with you oh that's perfect hit us up <laughs> disagreements are the way of progress right so let's go nice okay so yeah i I love principles as well um and actually so before 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 i dive into to i guess like my my kind of approach to principles i think one of the funny things is that i think he released a follow-up to the original principles book which is like a condensed short version now there's something about that that upset me because it's like (laughs) like Principles are hard things to actually like think through and to define yeah. and to like really comprehend. And I think that the the power of the fact that, you know, 
the, the original book was almost like a manual, and it's it's pretty chunky. It's not like a sit down and read it on a weekend kind of thing, unless you're slightly masochistic. Um, but yeah, you know, it, it, it's a chunky book, and I think it's great because it kind of it overlays. You know, this is a bit of the life story, and this is what I took away from it, and this is why I think this is important, and then this is how I've used it and thought about it throughout the rest of my life from that turning point. And I think it's that ability to contextualize, you know, this is what happened and this is why, you know, the principle is important. I think that relationships and context is so, so important. And releasing a shorter version of it, even though it makes it more digestible, I think in some ways does a disservice to principles. Because one thing mm -hmm. that I think principles should, should not be is almost like corporate culture values, you know. Agreed. Almost like yeah. a PR stunt. It's like, you know, we're <laughs> open-minded and collaborative yeah. and innovative and then you yeah, go and yeah. speak to like 10 people in that company it's like wait like none of this lines up you know <laughs> this culture and yeah. like these principles should be like your 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 uh modus operandi you know they should be generally how everyone thinks and feels and how they make decisions intuitively it shouldn't be yeah. something that you have to you know culture and principles in many ways shouldn't be aspirational they should be a historic reflection of what you've done Ooh, interesting way to look at it. Um, yeah. So, so okay. I think, let me yeah, let, let, let me give you a little bit more context, right? So, um, I think I've I've shared this deck that I created, right? In yeah, terms of yeah, like my, my so, so actually I I took the time to like try and define my own principles, and I kind of went through this process of you know let me think through all the interesting turning points, both highs and lows in my life, like professional life at least, and think about like what are the commonalities in terms of how did I make this certain decisions? How did I compromise on certain things? And what was the reason for that? And then off the back of that, then here's a historical account of how I tend to uh, respond in certain situations. And that doesn't mean that there's not an opportunity to growth. But I think that does mean that there's like a baseline set of beliefs and values that you're you, that you have consistently made decisions upon. And I think it's that consistency that's important, because without consistency, principles are just like, you know, uh, colorful hopes and dreams. Okay, S super interesting. So you said two things that triggered me, uh, and I'm going to respond in with two questions. So <laughs> first off, um, to this thing. Agreed, uh, but I do think it's very key to make sure that your principles do not um, just perpetuate the past in the sense that, mm. right, there should be some room for like hopes and dreams and even like, I, I just hope I'll do it this way and yeah. then just add it in there and then hope that it kind of works out because that's the only way to actually make it happen, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, so, so, so yeah, maybe let me clarify. I'm not saying that there's no room for growth and development within those principles. I'm yeah. much rather saying that, you know, if you're naturally quite a pessimistic, risk-adverse person, don't put one of your values as, you know, I take risks and I'm really creative. If that's yeah, not yeah, naturally yeah. who you are. And, 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 that and I agree with, yes. Maybe, maybe the reason why I'm saying this is because I guess, you know, and, and I think you might be able to relate to this for, for, uh, in many ways, but I find that particularly within startups and entrepreneurship, you operate under a lot of stress. When you operate under a lot of stress, you kind of have to go back to almost like the lowest common denominator in terms of what's naturally and biologically and psychologically the path of least resistance for you. There's some mm -hmm. people that are naturally 
you know, more open-minded, more risk-taking, more creative um, for a variety of like nature and nurture reasons. And, you know, it's much easier for them to do that under stress than for someone who isn't that. And I'm not saying one is right and the other is wrong. I'm not making no value judgments. I'm just saying that people are different. Yeah. But if people are, uh, you know, are under stress and one of their values is something that is aspirational, you're setting yourself up for like a really, really difficult uh, situation where you're going to be at conflict with what you've intellectually defined as your identity, but what you've experientially not fulfilled. Yeah. The, in that sense, absolutely agreed. Um, the reason, at least personally, I wouldn't do it. And I think anyone that truly reads the book really well wouldn't do it is because one of like um, one of his key principles, and I think it's actually principle one or 1.2 or something is like truth is the essential ingredient to any good outcome. So like even, um, well, if you're not even honest to yourself, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Good luck with the rest, but definitely <laughs> agreed though. It's a, it's, it's worth a warrant. Um, the other, because like I didn't even answer this with a question. So Sorry. let's do it now. As for the, the shorter book, Personally, I think that's just a matter of form, right? So I, I don't know the shorter version and I don't know exactly what's in there. But my question is this. Do you think the shorter book has the same audience? Or do you think he actually shows this to a new segment, thereby opening up the way for them? It's a bit of a leading question. Sorry about that. but <laughs> No, it's a very leading question, but I do agree. Yeah, no, it's, it, it, it's a different audience and has a different purpose. But I guess what I'm saying is that the reason why I think principles and values are so important, and I've spent a lot of time, you know, especially over the last couple of years, thinking about this. Yeah. And the reason why is because I think that these, the principles and the values that you live by, it's almost you do the hard work um, to understand who you are, how you operate, what you value. Because very often, you know, in the when you're in the thick of it, I, you know a high positive or a high negative experience, the cloudiness of the situation makes it difficult for you to make a decision. So if you have this kind of like, yeah. you know, these meta concepts of, okay, well, you know, one of the values and one of the like fundamental beliefs that I have is, you know, for example, I'm a person that always, um, I don't know, responds with compassion. It might be really difficult for you to understand like, you know, in the heat of an argument or uh, something like that, what, what, you know, how you should respond. But if there's this meta thing that's almost like a lighthouse that's saying, like, you know, respond with compassion, yeah. it means that you kind of step, your, you, you can kind of like step, uh, bring yourself out of that situation much easily and have like, you know, a guiding, a, a guiding light to help you kind of understand like, you know, this is, you know, take everything that's happening right now and the situation away from it. This is the bigger, more important thing that you're trying to live your life by. Yeah. I do agree. Yes. True. Cool. So right. key, key thing, think about your own principles. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and At principles least, is like, a great book for that. Yeah. And like, even if you, cause we're talking about like independence of medium, right? So even if you don't like the long book and you don't like the short book, then there's like a great 30 minute video, which kind of like shows the essence of the book, which is even more of like deleting all the nuances, yeah, yeah. but even then you will yeah. have an idea of what it's about. So that's on YouTube worth watching. Yeah. Okay. Costa hit me with one of your favorite books, man. And please the same, a bit of context. All right. Okay. Um, this is so hard. 
but but okay, yeah. actually, let, 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 let's follow a, a similar vein. And I think this is going to be another really popular book that probably a lot of our friends have read as well. Um, but it's The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. Yeah. Um, so Ben was one of the early guys at Netscape. He's now like a VC um, at A16Z, basically like a big figurehead in, in sort of uh, the tech community. But I think when, when The Hard Thing About Hard Things came out, I was maybe – two years, two, three years into kind of like my startup kind of journey. And I was feeling really bitter and angry at that point with the startup community for the simple yeah. reason that I think, you know, it was just, uh, I mean, I think the hype has continued, but at that point it just felt like it was almost like peak period of like, oh my God, entrepreneurship is amazing. And, you know, there's all these accelerators coming out that are giving like loads of money. And it's almost like, you know, the barrier to entry was reduced so much and people got so excited and everyone, mm. you know, at that time was looking at, you know, Facebook and, 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 you know, how amazing they were doing and, you know, like all these tech companies and how they were, you know, absolutely blowing out of the stratosphere. And I just remember like at that point I was, man, like startups are really damn hard. And everyone yeah. that I know that's actually been working at this stuff for like, you know, more than two weeks has had a really, really quite a, roller coaster of an experience from like an emotional um, and even like financial point of view. Uh, and so from that point of view, so, so from that perspective, the hard thing about hard things came out and I was like, yes, this is a book that actually speaks to some of the emotional burdens and challenges mm -hmm. of entrepreneurship. Um, and I just recommended it to a lot of people at that time who were basically like, hey, Costa, you know, I want to start a business and, you know, I have this great idea. You're like, you know, how do I how do I raise money? How do I bring this to the market? It's going to be the next big thing. And it's like, OK, yeah. you know, let's take a step back. Like, are you really sure that you want to jump on this journey? Because it's, yeah. you know, again, no value judgment here. Um, you can do it. You can try. But at least go in like eyes wide open in terms of what you're actually signing yourself up for. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. And I recognize a lot of the, the things that you're talking about. Um, it's quite hypey. So let's say that someone ends up after this episode with too many books to read and decides that the hard thing of hard things is not going to make the list. What is something that you would definitely want to pass on? Some kind of thing, like anything that really stuck with you. doesn't have to be big. From the uh, book? Yeah. All right. Any kind of like mental model, theory, whatever. I think it wasn't a mental model or theory, but I think there was just one particular story where uh, sort of Ben, I think at this point, dot-com bubble had just burst. Um, and he was, I think Netscape was about like 300 people or something like that. I might be getting the facts slightly, slightly wrong here in terms of the timings. But the general direction was that he was on the road fundraising because he was trying to save his company. Um, and, you know, if he wasn't, if he didn't close the fundraising, they'd have to let a lot of people go. Um, and I think as an entrepreneur, the burden of paying people's salaries is always uh, really damn high. Um, and yeah. if you've never been there before, it's, it, it's quite an experience, especially when like the going gets tough. Um, and I've, I know now, actually, this is probably such an interesting time for many entrepreneurs out there, given what's happening in the world. But, you know, mm -hmm. this isn't a COVID episode. Back to the book. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so he was fundraising, trying to like save his company. And he receives a phone call from his father-in-law saying that his wife's in the hospital and she's, you know, not 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 uh, not really uh, doing very well at all. And there was some kind of like medical issue there. And it was just that split moment of, you know, like 
okay, do I do I go back? Am I am I there for my wife and and and, and children, or do I carry on on this roadshow on the other side of America and try and like save the company? And yeah. I think it was that particular story that that stuck with me. And again, I might be getting the facts a little bit off, but it was just around this kind of whole like wicked hard decisions where like you're you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. And yeah. this kind of happens quite a lot when you're when when you're a leader and you have like a lot of responsibility on your shoulders. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Um, great story <laughs> and true. And it's true, man. Um, interesting. Did, uh, I think one of the, the, the parts of that book that was really interesting to me, um, is where he dives into this really resonated with me as a leader. How do you lead when you've got no idea where to go? <laughs> Right. Because there will be a lot of times when even as a leader, you're like, OK, well, yes, we did go this way because I said it. And now the playing board has changed. Yeah. Therefore, I just hope that it's still the right route. Yeah. Uh, and he has insightful thoughts there. Yeah. And, and, and I think just to follow on that point, he has a lot of really great analogies between wartime CEO and peacetime CEO. And yeah, true. just the difference between those two archetypes and I guess the importance of being able to switch from one to the other. Um, and I yeah. think probably in the next six to nine months, it's going to be, it's going to be really interesting because a lot of people have been forced to go into wartime, you know, CEO management styles, uh, recently just with everything that's happening in the world. So I'm very, I'm very curious, like, you know, even if economically and operationally, like sort of the world starts moving again, mm-hmm. will people's mindsets, how long will it take for people's mindsets to shift and recalibrate? Right. So like, will you continue to be in scarcity mode? Actually, speaking of Ray Dalio, he had a, a really interesting interview recently that I, I listened to, which is, you know, he talked about the difference between um, baby boomers and the great generation. So the guys that went through the Great Depression and the people that were born just after that. Um, yeah. And he was saying that, you know, a lot of the, uh, people from that were around during the Great Depression, they basically continued with the scarcity mindset for such a long time. And they were never able to like uh, capture the economic growth uh, that the baby boomers did just because the baby boomers were, you know, from his point of view, more open minded and more risk taking because they kind of sensed that, you know, it was hard. Yeah. But now it's now it's easier and I kind of like need to respond to the times. Yeah, 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 anyway, yeah. we digress. It, it, <laughs> yeah, that's that's fine. It's still the author of one of the books. We can get yeah. away with this, I think. Yeah. Um, good save. Good save. Right. Interesting. Right. Interesting. Um, Another book. Shall I just kick another one off? Yeah, do it. Super Forecasting by Philip Tetlock and Dan Gardner. Um, we talked about System 1 and 2 mm-hmm. by Daniel Kahneman. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the cover of this book, there's Daniel Kahneman actually recommending this book. Amazing. <laughs> which is amazing if you know the guy like he's not one that just like write writes blurbs for the yeah. attention right <laughs> like um and he actually says that it's a practical guide to living uh with fewer biases in some ways like living with with mm. this irrational mind right and in short the the backstory so philip tedlock is a researcher um he started a big project where in essence, it's about super for, like about forecasting the future. Mm-hmm. So the core idea behind this was everyone is constantly predicting the future, mm-hmm. right? Like if you 
if you take a slice of life, right, like a short period, then in the end, you're making a prediction of what the situation is going to be like before you do pretty much anything, whether yep. you decide, act or whatever. And uh, he was trying to figure out how good are we at forecasting the future? And um, there was a huge tournament uh, about... In essence, like with the goal of how can you make people forecast stuff better mm -hmm. and better than the national agencies that were doing it in yeah. uh, the USA. And in this tournament, what they did, they just had normal people in the tournament and then just gave them a bunch of predictions on a geopolitical level. So, uh, for example, do you think there will be... Um, rise like or, or do you think the war will continue to go on in this period within the next six months right like these kind of predictions yeah. and then they would people would be able to like answer these questions and they would figure out how well the people did it how they kind of did it they added like forums so people could mm -hmm. like chat with each other and would figure out who the people were that um predicted the best or that forecasted the best. And then this was a multi-year project. So after the first year, they got the, the creme de la creme mm -hmm. and then they got them together and said, okay, you're a group now, uh, here's your forum. So uh, talk with each other. And they also like interviewed them to figure out what are the things that they did. Yep. And in the end, they came up with a bunch of, how would you say this? mindset elements i would almost say like like mm -hmm. what is the profile of a super forecaster someone who is predictably very good at predicting the future and it was very very insightful because they this was one of the studies where they actually showed that um just totally normal people yep and and like totally normal people for example like a housewife who, who hadn't been in a very um, it didn't have a big career or whatever, she would be better at predicting the, the future than these national agency institutes, yeah. right? Which is super interesting. And they figured out why. Um, I, very I, insightful. I've, I've heard the story and it's, it's referenced actually in quite a few books um, of this whole, like whole experiment. And I think the interesting thing to kind of like point out here is that, you know, when you say national agencies, it's like, you know, the the organizations in the US, so it's like the NSA, it's the uh, FBI, and there's, there's I think, two other kind of like security organizations. Yeah. And not yeah. only did they pick their best people, but they also had much more data and resources than the super forecasting group, right? Or am yeah, I? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 100%. Which I think is like really, really interesting, which is kind of, I guess, kind of comes back to a point that we've maybe discussed before, which is around having having data having more data isn't the problem now it's being able to filter that data correctly and learning how to ignore most of it because it's noise yeah 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 absolutely and um so, a lot of this stuff like just comes down to like thinking scientifically right yeah uh, okay. having a bunch of like thought patterns that help you yeah farm speaking yes. of forecasting i've got another book which just kind of came into my mind um which is so I love Dan Ariely, probably one of the best like behavioral econom uh, economists out there, just in terms of writing yeah. accessible books that talks about Agreed. the principles. Um, I think there's more academic writers that are much deeper, but Dan, Dan Ariely has like the perfect blend for me in terms of, uh, mm -hmm. you know, accessible, but also kind of like quite scientific um, in terms of his yeah. thinking. So 
I got a, I don't know who it was that recommended to me, but after I kind of was just raving, I went through a phase where I read like all of his books. Someone said, oh, you know, you should read Stumbling on Happiness by, is it Daniel Gilbert? Mm. Yes, Daniel Gilbert. Yeah. And that, that is a really, really amazing book about uh, basically forecasting and happiness. Um, and just to kind of like give a, a very quick summary, I guess, that the, the concept that Daniel kind of talks about is that, you know, in order to make decisions, we often make decisions to try and be happier, right? So, you know, we've got, we've got two, two options ahead of us. So say, you know, you're, you're currently dating, uh, someone and you're figuring out, okay, do I go with them or do I go with someone else? Like, you know, do I, do I marry this person or do I like try and find the next person? And the way that many people make the decision is like they try and imagine, okay, well, let me forecast myself like five, six months into the future. How would I, you know, where would I be happier? And this book yeah. basically goes that, this is a very natural thing to do, but here's like 15 different ways that your mind fucks you up when you make that prediction. <laughs> Interesting, yeah. And one of the one of the thought experiments from that book that really stuck with me, I'll, actually I can try and play it with you, see if it will work. <laughs> go ahead. I haven't read the book, so there we go. Okay, cool. Um, so do you like cars? Cool. Uh, kind of. Kind of. Okay, like can you can you – Imagine yourself like, you know, driving um, a sports car, like your favorite sports car, somewhere like really, really cool. I, I can imagine it. Okay. It wouldn't be a dream of mine. Okay. Interesting. Okay. This sport experiment doesn't really work then. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry but, about that. <laughs> yeah. Dude, man, you crashed it. <laughs> no, I didn't no, crash it because I didn't drive it. That's the key. <laughs> there we go. Oh, okay, I'll stop. Um, go ahead. No, but okay. So, so, so long story short, they, they did these experiments with like really, really big car enthusiasts um, and basically asked yeah. them to imagine themselves what would be like driving this car. And they basically went around and said, you know, you know, spend some time meditating, like 10 minutes in silence, just like really thinking through like the entire experience, what it feels like, what it smells like, you know, how does it feel like on your skin, like all these different things. And then people yeah. asked to like recreate the story. And at the end of that story recreation, the researcher would go in and ask some like super obvious questions around like, okay, so what's the license plate of the car? Yeah. And almost yeah. no one would have thought about the license plate of the car. And yeah. the, the, the interesting thing there is that, you know, like we think that when we're imagining the future, we're painting in high definition, but really we're just painting with really thick brush strokes. <laughs> and, and, and I think that's well like a, a really, really interesting kind of like takeaway just in terms of forecasting and, you know, trying to like make decisions to optimize for happiness. You have like recency yeah. bias. You have the fact that your imagination actually doesn't work in high definition and you kind of like, you know, paint, you, you, you contextualize a lot of stuff on, on very few data points and you think you have a full image in your head, but actually you don't. And the license plate is just one common example. They actually ask like eight or nine super specific questions that any car will have, but the people yeah. just didn't really think about it because they thought they thought about everything, but they actually they didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Um, it's interesting how, how a recurring pattern among these books is like, in essence, how they're about overcoming biases, yeah. right? Uh, whether it's for happiness or whether it's for predicting the future mm -hmm. or whether it's about like giving you some kind of like steady principles, therefore making it less likely that you, you're led astray by your subconscious, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, this is us and, you know, the whole podcast is called Exploring Reality. 
it's it's kind of congruent (laughs) (laughs) very true i wouldn't say it's like a sample representative of all the books but hey there we go yeah 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 okay interesting okay so what we're gonna do we got yeah go ahead I, i i feel like we should actually jump around and maybe step away from like business and psychology books for a little bit good let's go for it so so hit me with something of a different genre Oh, something of a different genre. Okay, <laughs> fully improvised. I very much loved uh, Taming the Infinite. Oh, um, okay. It, it's by, I think, a mathematics professor called Ian Stewart. And he is, he is passionate about mathematics like you've never seen anyone <laughs> passionate about mathematics. And um, so... I'm I'm not a star at math, honestly. Like I'm I'm not really a numbers guy, and and as a kid, I did enough to like make sure that I wouldn't become it, <laughs> thereby <laughs> making it hard now. But this is a book about the history of mathematics, mm. and um, every once in a while. Okay, so I think we we humans. Sorry, bringing it back to the psychology for a bit. Yeah. I think we humans. Um, tend to get stuck in loops. We're creatures of habit, right? So yeah. we tend to get in these kind of loops where where you're constantly thinking about somewhat the same, which is very mm-hmm. good because you just broke it by, rec- like, for example, asking about a totally different direction of books. And um, for example, I don't have a need to understand the history of mathematics. But I think it was such, like, it's such an interesting topic, so mm-hmm. out of my realm that I knew this is something where I literally am I'm going to read 70% new stuff, yep. <laughs> which I don't know about. And given how mathematics is in some ways like the, the core thing, even beyond physics, where mm-hmm. everything is based on, it's really interesting to understand some of these concepts. For example, mm-hmm. how huge the impact of the number zero was or mm-hmm. how like writing numbers down even came to be it wasn't necessary at first and then it Mm. kind of was very useful and then we just noticed hey okay we don't need to have the stones in the envelope when you write on the envelope how many stones are in there okay interesting like so how how history progresses almost in a in a stumbling forward right like (laughs) stumbling progress in some ways uh i think that was one that definitely like broke my perspective uh broke is a is a intense word but that was definitely a good book worth checking out yeah definitely shifted shaped whatever nice uh how about you totally different realm cool uh so i think the the first relationship book that i read was models by mark manson and by the way i have to say Mm -hmm. so mark manson and ryan holiday are probably my two favorite authors just in terms of their consistency to write interesting books that I love. Um, but yeah, I think that the story of how I, how I read that book and kind of like how it came to be, because again, I think the context of where you're at in terms of your life and, and, and sort of like how you approach that, uh, you know, how that book comes to be in your life is, is quite important. So I think for me, I, I read models by, uh, as a, as almost a direct opposition to being recommended to read the game by Neil Strauss and then reading a couple of chapters and just kind of like putting it down. Um, Just because I guess like on a principles and values level, that book just didn't agree with me. And I was like, okay, like what is the antithesis? Like what is the other side of the spectrum? Um, Because (laughs) this doesn't really uh, make sense. And I guess like for the audience, audience listening, like if you don't know, 
the game by Neil Strauss. It's basically this guy who uh, was a, a, a professional pickup artist, and he used a bunch of psychological tricks to basically get women to sleep with him. And he created this whole kind of like online movement, I think in like the early, mid-2000s, um, that basically turned him into like a global star. He wrote this book. Uh, then he became a sex addict and like quite, quite like an interesting kind of story. But I think, you know, imagine teenage boys thinking, oh, my God, there's a guide to understanding and picking up women. This is amazing. So you can understand kind of why that book was viral um, at the time it was. But I just remember picking it up and I was like, uh, yeah, this just doesn't doesn't stick well with me. I don't like this stuff. So, yeah, so, yeah. so Models is it's interesting because it kind of it got recommended as a kind of like relationship book, which at the time I was kind of like curious about um, with sort of like particular girls that I was dating, etc. But I think that the fascinating thing that I found about that book was actually the concept of authenticity and the importance of that. And now I think as I've gotten older, I've just become to like value and appreciate that even more. And now actually, I guess like he talks about it very much from like a, you know, just building meaningful relationships with people. And a lot of that just comes from vulnerability and authenticity. I think like two primary pillars. And I think over the years, I guess I've kind of understood also the psychological um, kind of, components and the sociological components of why those two things are actually important. So I guess authenticity in terms of congruence and sort of if you think what you say and say what you do and, you know, thought, action, speech are kind of like all aligned, it's actually a really efficient way for you to operate as a human being in terms of the (laughs) cognitive mental load that you have. Because you're not, you're not trying to like recreate a facade every time, right? And, and, and so, like, you know, as thought enters, you don't have to have, like, lots of different filters until kind of, like, actions or, or, or words take shape. So from that point of view, A, it's actually pretty efficient, um, but B, actually allows that people can build, you know, better forecasting and better predictions on your actions and how you're going to behave in certain situations, which means that you now become more trustworthy. Yeah. Um, Agreed. So, so yeah, it, it, it's, like, it's, like, really interesting how that basically gave me the emotional kind of understanding i think in terms of like relationships and the kind of relationships i want to build and then over the years i think i've kind of been able to compound that with just the psychological and biological understanding of like why you know vulnerability and authenticity are actually important yeah yeah um yeah i i read the same book and i think i think it's very strong as well um like i also got recommended it in a in a similar way Mm. um and like I was very happily surprised with the book because mm. <laughs> I, I like I was afraid it would be a shallow book, if that yeah. makes sense, especially with like models on the cover. And I was like, OK, OK, it's going to be the one like this. But let's mm. see at least like be open minded. Um, but like I think in his opening chapter, he actually talks about how the models doesn't necessarily stand for like like uh, sexy models. Right. It stands for the fact that a lot of guys nowadays grow up without a good model of what kind of man they could be in some ways and this book tries to give that to you so i think in that sense it's it's almost um of course like the central theme in some ways is also around like relationships but i think it's a very good book on just generally how do you uh how are you fully at ease with yourself Mm -hmm. so yeah yeah (laughs) interesting interesting suggestion yeah but I guess at that, that point, I should probably mention that, you know, Mark Manson, I think, has really clever titles 
So his other books have been called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, which yeah. stands out on a shelf. Um, and also his latest book, I think, was called um, We're All Fucked, a book about hope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he uh, he's a wordsmith. Yeah. Um, Very entertaining okay. as well. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so what are we going to do? Are we going to like... Um, wait. List one more book, but then super short. We want to give people some kind of like book overload, right? After this. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Great. Um, without a shadow of a doubt, the chimp paradox. If you're interested in kind of like building a better understanding of mental models, the chimp paradox is just a very handy tool, like guide of talking about uh, the computer, the chimp, and the human. It kind of creates this analogy. Where, you know, the chimp is your um, lizard brain or your, God, I'm f forgetting the brain uh, terminology here. Uh, reptilian brain, middle brain, yep. neocortex, pretty neocortex. much. Neocortex, yep, yeah. there we go. Yeah. Um, and then your human is like your, you know, your more developed uh, consciousness, um, sort of like, you know, all your strategy, your planning, your values, kind of like the, uh, the stuff that's been developed most recently from an evolutionary point of view. And then your computer, which is much around like your autonomic nervous system. So you very much like your fight and flight response and kind of like all the things that are very like pre-programmed in, like you see height, you're scared, you see spider, you're scared. Like these are things that just evolutionary have been a part of uh, us as a species for a long time. And I guess like the yeah. neural connections between the, the, the body and the senses are just like really, really strong because it's been around for such a long time. And so this book basically just talks about how, you know, each one of these systems has a function and they all have to work together. So the computer, the chimp and the, and the human. Um, and it basically talks about the relationship of managing your chimp. So how do you manage, I guess, like the reptilian side of you, right? So it's territorial, uh, you know, it has a sex drive, it's hungry. Like, you know, it has all these like very animalistic drives. So, uh, you know, in, in, in really simple terms, the best, you know, it's kind of like, pitch the book, I guess it goes, you're never responsible, like, you know, no one's ever going to hate you for your chimp behaving like a chimp, but you have to take responsibility of your chimp. I, if it starts shouting and screaming, it's an animal. It does that once in a while. But if it starts attacking people, you have to take responsibility of that because you're the owner. Um, and, and it kind of just goes through all sorts of different, um, yeah, like mental and, and kind of like life situations involving that kind of like mental construct of those three systems in yeah, yeah yeah interesting i haven't read this one but i think it's a it's a useful metaphor yeah right. um right cool i'm gonna quickly add two more to the list boom <laughs> both fully in the psychological realm just so you know okay. um one is as a man thinketh by james james allen mm -hmm. very old book written in 1902 um but it's super powerful. It's it's very short. It's a literary essay, as far as I know, and uh, it's just on the power of thoughts. Mm -hmm. Like I think a lot of people don't realize how intensely powerful their thoughts are, and whether you like whether you focus on controlling your or your own thoughts, especially internally, talking mm -hmm. to yourself or not. Um, it's a decision either way, and it comes with consequences. So like better to like tame your mind, mm. right? It pretty much comes down to the same thing. And I think this is the most powerful book that I've seen on why thoughts actually make your character. And it's not a hundred percent correct, of course, it's written mm. in 1902, of course, some stuff is outdated, but it's a useful reminder. Nice. And on the other hand, I think 
The Mind Illuminated by John Yates. Um, he's also called Kuladasa, by the way. That's his monk name. And he's a PhD. He's a PhD neuroscientist. Uh, so he studied for about 40 years the brain from without, like from the outside and yeah. from the inside. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and I think he's very insightful. And it's, it's all about the nuances. Uh, in the sense of like, for example, the difference between attention and awareness. Mm -hmm. And he does a, a, a splendid job at like explaining that. Um, also, one, one tiny thing, the book, like The Mind Illuminated, it's it's about like Buddhist wisdom as well. Mm. It's about mastering your own mind in yep. essence. Uh, so meditation, happiness. And I think it's good that like one of the writers, one of the authors, he's called Matthew Immergut. Immergut. Always good. I think that's a great name for this book. So I'm going to finish it up with that. Nice. Actually, so right. I, I just finished up reading The Undefeated Mind by Dr. Alex Linkman, I think it is. Yeah. Mm, um, interesting. Very, very kind of like similar book. So he, this is a doctor and psychiatrist. Um, and this book is basically around like how to create an undefeated mind, which is basically a mind that's resilient. Um, and he basically just talks for a lot of different cases of a lot of different patients that he's had over the years and just kind of connects it to psychology and um, kind of like Buddhism teachings because he's a he's a specific sect of Buddhism that doesn't really, you know, we don't need to get yeah. into that kind of detail. Um, yeah. But really, really powerful book, really interesting, and kind of like great examples of like, you know, just, just because he's a doctor, he just has like this wealth of case studies of, you know, I once had this patient, he had this thing, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that's really good. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I guess like, in recent years, I think the popularity of these kind of blended books between psychology and Buddhism and neuroscience yeah. is just starting to grow. It feels like an exploding field where I just keep getting yeah. more and more books uh, recommended to me um, in this section, which is probably a good segue to what we're going to talk about next episode, right? Yes, absolutely, because it's meditation. Yeah. Uh, and mindfulness. And, and mindfulness yeah. more generally. Um, yeah, we <laughs> we said we would do this last episode, right? So we're still going to do it. Boom. Yes. All right. Then awesome. shall we finish it up? Yeah. Um, this was this was interesting. I hope that you guys got some interesting perspectives on books that you might have heard before. And hopefully you've heard about some books that we both highly recommend um, that you now need to add to your reading list. I think actually the, the one best thing about, uh, I think, reading books is actually it, the list never grows shorter. It's actually much more about prioritization and being able to, like, pick the next book that's right um, as opposed to, like, you know, yeah. get through the list. Yeah. yeah. Just in time information as opposed to just in case. Yeah. Nice. Right. All right, okay, guys. Good. Thanks for tuning in. It was a pleasure. See you next week uh, where we're going to be talking about mindfulness.